0: Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus,
1: Brendan and Mark. Brendan here, welcome to the Vet Gurus episode 174, 29th of January. 2021. In my notes, Mark, it says 29nd. 29 d- 29 it's a, a bastardisation of N- N- M- N- whatever. So anyway, how are you, Mark? It is um, 29th of January, episode 174. What have you been up to?
0: Just the usual, Brendan. Just work. It feels like all I ever do is go to work. Not that that's a bad place and there's been some good things happening Um, and one of the things that um, I thought was pretty exciting at work this last week was um, that I got to review a patient that we'd both seen that one of our clients had um, slipped over the border during the brief period that uh, the bubble was open, the bubble was burst or how two states (laughs) were allowed to communicate and and you did a progress exam on one of the... uh, the the uh, lizards a bit of dragon that uh, I see regularly and um, and that lizard uh, Xanadu came back to see us uh, just recently so I feel more connected to you than usual Brendan and don't go did they speak, don't go there
1: <laughs> did they speak nicely about me or not
0: no, no um, they, they, the interesting thing from my point of view is that um, we we obviously recommended. Uh, that they attend your fine establishment while they're in the southern capital, southern. <laughs> um, and and they said, I don't know whether you should take this as a compliment or not, but they felt the that uh, um, the famous Warrenwood Veterinary Clinic was um, was a, an exact you know continuity with the standards at the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital. So uh, you can take that uh, however you want, Brendan.
1: Yes, I'd like to think that we've got very high standards, but who knows, Mark? We could be um, decrepit institutions. Yes, whatever
0: it is, Uh, we're equally there, Brendan.
1: We're on the same wavelength. We're on the same wavelength. Yes, no, well, same with me. um, With with work, um, lots of work, um, um, interesting and and fun. Yeah, quite. I am finding work. through um, quite relaxing, bit of a restructure recently with a few things. But um um yeah it's good. I'm in- really enjoying it at the moment. So a bit of a refresh, Mark. Um I'm physically a little bit tired, um, but slowly working out some extra time off, etc. So yeah, and some fun cases too, which which
0: I'm not going to talk about any of them because (laughs) off the top of my head, I can't... What do you you think about talking about, you know, that whole refresh, reboot thing? I sort of feel like our last um, uh, eight or nine, well, 12 months since the first coronavirus case in Australia, that 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 time has sort of had us on hold. And I, I feel the same as you. I think there's a bunch of things that are happening that are charting, you know, instead of just looking a few weeks ahead, we're now going, okay, well, this is the way life's going to be. We're not going to be able to travel overseas, so we're going to do these things instead. Um, It does feel like it has been a little bit of a new year, refresh, reboot, head in the new direction, um, move yes. forward.
1: move forward and yet the same with some of it because it's going to be slow, isn't it, with the changes and um, people were thinking they'd be travelling again fairly soon in 2021, but I expect it won't be to at least 20. 20- twenty two that um, things settle down and uh, they 've announced the vaccine rollout here in australia um, in about a month or so haven't they mark so hopefully that'll gear up and and help things along a bit but actually, I have got some other news I just realized we 've got moths um, in in my drawers uh, in, my be- <laughs> in my bedroom and i 'm not happy so some of my very um, very um, favorite t shirts have, have got moth holes in them so you know those um the calvin Kleins. yeah no no not the, what the, the g-strings no um they've um yeah, so a few of my t-shirts and and little shorts and that have been eaten away, and uh, I'm not happy with them. So I've been doing a bit of a bit of an investigation on on trying to how to trying to get rid of them safely and and non-toxically, because traditionally what people do is they you put the mothballs or the or the other sort of insecticides in in your um, chest of drawers. You, uh, but the concern with that is that you're putting these chemicals in your bedroom and you're sleeping next door to it or next to it and um you could um, end up with issues there so um did a little bit of online with research with dr google mark and um, worked out that the important thing is to um, wash your clothes regularly (laughs) (laughs) so i pulled them all out and uh, washed a few of them and uh, vacuumed the drawers and uh, i've put in some of those um what are they called little cedar balls or cedar chips um, oh, yeah. which, um so they give off a bit of a you know natural sort of cedar smell you can put um your favourite um perfume on it or whatever or natural sort of eucalyptus or something like that on it and it supposedly deters uh Deters them, doesn't kill them. You can buy little moth traps, Mark, that um, trap the moths and, and kill the kill the breeding adults or whatever. Um, and you can buy them in the supermarket these days. So, yeah, I've been on a bit of a rabbit hole with with trying to stop all these little holes in my in my um, t shirts and that. And I'm wearing one of them at the moment. That's what reminded me of, and I can just found another little couple of holes in it. So, hopefully, that process has stopped and. Um, all my cotton little bits and pieces are not being eaten away anymore. So, if anybody has any tips on how to get rid of moths <laughs> in your chest of drawers, in your clothing cabinets, yeah, please email them to vetgurus at gmail dot com, and they'll be much appreciated.
0: Brendan, speaking where, of where have you yeah, um, where have you been storing your wallet?
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, and he um and he says that a lot. That's that's where they're all coming from. They're all coming from it. Yeah. Um. No. Um <laughs> it's amazing how many people these days. I
0: know. It's really changed the habit, hasn't
1: it? It's really changed the habit of it's all touch and go now, isn't it, with, with everything?
0: Um, I, I did actually think of this the other day. I I got into the car, which I turn on with the phone, with my license on the phone, and the all the credit cards are on the phone. I didn't don't need to take anything else but the phone. And geez, I don't I don't know that I'm happy about that. It's convenient. My goodness, it's convenient, but I don't know. I don't know how happy I am about it all yet, Brendan. What you worried about getting hacked and somebody being oh, hacked, or just the monster corporations knowing exactly what I'm doing all the time and predicting in advance what I'm going to buy next, and you know, just all that big brother stuff. Yes,
1: that big wad of cash under your bed—that's what's <laughs> causing your sore back, Mark, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. Yes, um, but things have changed, haven't they? As far as the cashless society, um, with the COVID, it certainly pushed it along. And although some countries are certainly doing it, doing that well before um, the rest of the world changed. And I remember when I travelled um, actually to China, um, and I was amazed at how very little um, cash was used, and everybody was using their little app to even pay for for minor things like a. You know, an orange or an apple at the little fruit markets, they'd have a little QR code that you would scan and that's how they would pay for most things. So, um, Yeah, so there you go, mate. The future, it's here already. <laughs> it's- well, we better get off this and on to some veterinary topics and I think we've got a couple of news stories and... Um,
0: do you want? I did to take I, the first one. Out? I do. I want to give you an update. We have, one of our on a, one of our previous podcasts. We did have a news story about um about the horseshoe crab um and how um that particular animal is um is undergoing some pressure because uh, it is uh um, caught in large numbers and um and it. Uh, is a forced donor, a forced blood donor, Brendan, the blood of the horseshoe crab, um, bluey, bluey green in colour. It's uh, harvested and um, this article has one, I haven't seen this picture in other articles, but it has a, uh, well, it's a bit of a distressing picture of a whole bunch of crabs all lined up donating their blue blood into neat bottles. Um, And uh, this story um, is sort of a bit, Twin-edged because um, it. uh, In our previous story, we talked about the company that had developed a recombinant DNA version of the lysate, the extract from the the uh, amoebocyte lysate, which, according to my rather faulty understanding um, is a little bit of an important test that most vaccines and medications have to go through. It helps something to do with the identification of endotoxin contamination. So um, it's really a critical part of the manufacturing process. And there was a a, um, synthetic form, but um, this story You know, casts that I don't think that synthetic, the recombinant DNA form, has been approved by um, uh, the FDA in America, and um, and it would appear that the amoebocyte lysate extract um, from the live crabs um, is critical to the development of the coronavirus vaccines, and so um, there is. An increased pressure on those animals once again, um, and I did. Uh, this article also points out that um, their um, their enforced blood donation um, is uh, does result. You know, they're not killed to get the blood; they're alive when this happens, um, and then they're released afterwards. But um, but recent research suggests as many. As 30% of the bled crabs would have died as a result of that intervention, ten times as many as first estimated. So the increased pressure on those animals because of the coronavirus. Um, I know I don't think that's a good thing. I'm the company that developed the recombinant stuff. I'm, I'm really hoping they can um, get over those regulatory hurdles and uh, get their synthetic version. Into place so that it uh, reduces the need to farm those crab, uh, to, well, capture and bleed those crabs for this purpose.
1: Yes, and release them to die. Yes, it's they're fascinating creatures, aren't they? Horseshoe crabs. And the previous episode, Mark, I've just looked it up. One fifty-four. Um, we talk about the horseshoe crab and that um, the blue blood that saves millions of lives is the subheading for that. So you can go to vetgurus and click on that, or do a search and just look for episode one fifty four if you haven't listened to it before. Yeah, it's it's tricky. Although they do meant they do say their justification too is that uh, the in an email that explained to the author of the article, to make 5 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine, 600,000 tests would be performed, which would use the amount of lysate created in a single day um, of the production. So um, they're justified at saying that, look, you're getting 5 billion doses out of a single day worth of um, bleeding, um, these um, horseshoe crabs. But um, it'd be nice when they come up with a, an unofficial um, method, Mark, and, and using that. I think part of it will obviously be that, that um, the the trademarked alternative um, obviously has a bit of a cost to go with it, and that's probably why they're still doing it. Um, so maybe they need to force their hand, don't they? Um, so I've got a slightly more upbeat tale that started off not quite as upbeat, um, Mark. It's about, um, and I don't think you knew about Joe, did you? I thought I you didn't. would have been all over Joe. I wasn't aware of Joe. Joe the pigeon, which supposedly had flown 13,000 kilometres from the USA and landed weak but alive in an Australian backyard. And it was, it, it sort of went a bit viral because Kevin, whose surname is Sally Bird, um, owner of a, um, Back of the said backyard is recovering from the global media blast. caught into the into that subhead in there, and it was about that um, he he's a building inspector, Mark in in Melbourne here in um, Victoria, Australia, and he found a pigeon, and uh, it was he it had a tag on it, and uh, they thought that the tag tracked this bird back to, and it matched a bird that was released in a race in central Oregon in the USA in October that hadn't made it home. So the thought was that um, little Joe the Pigeon, which is what he named this bird, um, happened to end up in Melbourne, Mark. And um, then there was a big kerfuffle because it hit the headlines and and um, the... Um, Person who, who who found it, Mister Selly Bird, is um, Kevin. Let's just call him Kevin. Let's just call him Kevin. It's, it's um, Selly Bird, it's- <laughs> yes, Selly Bird. Um, he let's just call him Kevin. Um, he he ended up on breakfast television in in the USA and uh, had, was interviewed by the Washington Post and the New York Times, and uh, um, he became a bit of a minor. Um, celebrity there, um, but the um, and then it sort of went to the next level. Mark with the quote, and I remember seeing this in the in the local newspaper or the electronic version of the newspaper. Australia's deputy prime minister, none other than. Um, whose name is Michael McCormick, um, said bad luck if Joe fell foul of our biosecurity measures, and he could either fly off home or face the consequences. Um, so they're going to kill Joe basically. <laughs> um, um, with concern about um quarantine issues. Um, so, um, Kevin decided to stick up for him and um started um doing more interviews. Um, but. Then it got a little bit more complex and, and it was found that that the tag that was on him um, was not very similar to other leg tags that um, had been placed on Australian pigeons. And the thought is very strongly that Joe is almost certainly um, just a local bird, Mark. So um, the bottom line in, he's, he's been... Um, Um, He's been. He is now a free bird, suppose so to speak, and um, they've rescinded his execution order, and um, I think he's going to keep Joe and and Mark. You'll know more about this than me, but if you look at um, Joe, also one of the other thoughts was that Joe, um, oh, sorry, not Joe the bird, but yeah, Joe um, is is almost certainly not a racing pigeon, Mark. Um, So, what's your thoughts on this particular? Is it a happy story? Is it a is it a is it a bit of a a bit of a a warning for us all, Mark. I,
0: I, oh. <laughs> I literally don't know what to say. Um, there are lots of um, there are lots of tags on birds for different databases, and I would be very surprised if uh, it's certainly pigeons fly a long way. A um, thousand kilometers isn't unheard of, but maybe thirteen thousand across the Pacific Ocean is probably a big ask for them. I, I, you know, it doesn't look like a racing pigeon. It doesn't have the plumage of a racing pigeon. Um, it doesn't, apparently um, there was some research done, which said it didn't fly like a racing pigeon. Um, so I think there's a good chance that it's not the bird in question. Um, I think it's funny, you know, because um, the, um, the, the government here gets all, you know, as, as governments, you know, they are bureaucracies. I don't want to, Give them any more credit than they deserve, um, and they're just following the rules. And the bird comes from another country, possibly, and and could present a biosecurity risk. And all of us vets who work with exotic animals will be aware of some cases where maybe someone knows someone who has a an illegally imported reptile, and and of course that animal presents a biosecurity risk, um, and and it just shouldn't be done. But. Um, but to put that in context, there are huge flocks of, uh, of um, birds that fly the East Asian uh, um, flyway from Siberia to Tasmania twice yearly um, and, and literally uh, th- hundreds of thousands of birds will have flown over Melbourne from Siberia At the same time, they were arguing about this single pigeon. So I think sometimes you've just got to keep these things in perspective, Brendan.
1: Yes, and I think they they were fairly certain that uh, Joe is actually a Turkish tumbler bird, Mark, which is a a type of um, pigeon that is certainly not bred for... For, for flight, for long flights. And I think they're called that because of their ability to tumble or roll over backwards in flight. <laughs> And um, whether which, whether which, he could have done that for maybe he did, and he went back the wrong way um, for fifteen thousand kilometres. Um, who knows? Yes. So um, the plot thickens. Mark. So is he a racing pigeon or not? Um,
0: I think I think the Australian politicians should be called as Australian tumblers for their ability to yeah. <laughs> flip mid-flight. So,
1: Joe is. He's off death row, according to this article, Mark, and uh, he'll live quite a happy life until um, he gets eaten by a fox or
0: something. The peregrine falcons, your famous Victorian yes. peregrine yes, falcons,
1: yes, yes, yes. So there we go. So there's Joe, the pigeon that won hearts globally. So sort of a bit of a good, 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 um, good news story, Mark. I think in in one respect. So that that's it. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. So let's jump into our main topic, and it's. Well, this is going to be a bit of a rambling one, but we'll try and keep it short (laughs) and sharp um, because we haven't really done much of a prep for this one. But you suggested gastrointestinal. Intestinal obstruction so, in
0: birds. And so often, as is the case, Brendan, these um, these uh, topics we talk about are d- the direct result of cases that you and I have seen in practice. That, that seems to be a consistent thing. What prompts us to have a talk to each other about them is what we see in practice. And we have seen an upswing in the number of cases of uh, various gastrointestinal obstructions in birds at work, and I thought it would be good for us to have a talk about them
1: Excellent. So, my first question is why? Why do you think there's an
0: upsurge in them? My, um, I, there's. I think there's three factors involved. I think in my practice, um, I think we're um, we're increasingly alert to it. Um, both our clients and uh, the clinicians that see the animals are are. Um, aware due to years of doing postmortems on very sick birds and going, oh my goodness, look in here, there's a foreign body. Now we have it on our radar. And secondly, um, I think that um, there's there's an upswing in the industry of environmental enrichment, which I think on the surface is an outstandingly good thing. But what it does mean is people are vaguely aware that they should get things for their birds to play for and less uh, to play with and less certain exactly what the best things are going to be and the safest things are going to be. And the final thing is the number of species. I think, you know, when I first graduated, it it would be uh, mainly the cockatiels and budgerigars that we would see as the major slab of our uh, pet bird Work, whereas now certainly there's a cohort of people who have pigeons apparently as pets. There's a cohort of people who have uh, poultry as pets, not just as um, egg-producing yard animals, and um, and of course the number of parrots species that are kept as pets has uh, has increased dramatically, and and the availability of some of those more desirable species such as macaws, um, where once you had to be a media celebrity with a considerable disposable income, you still have to have a considerable disposable income, but it's—but um, they are much more available uh, these days to more people. So they're the factors, Brendan.
1: I think you've answered all my other questions in that one <laughs> reply there, Mark. So you're making it quite um, snappy today. So, yes, um, so there are certain species, obviously, and you've sort of summarised um, the common ones that you see that, of these our avian friends that have these GI obstructions so my next question is what are the signs why are they brought in with is it is it are they difficult to 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 diagnose these do you find them incidentally and you sort of mentioned that um um, sort of obscurely with 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 that post-mortem comment you had there um yeah let's go through that
0: well i think we're we're identifying the clinical signs more and i'll probably take the, you know, the one class of foreign body out of our discussion today, and that's the, the, um, the heavy metals, yes. um, zinc and lead particles. But the reason that birds ingest those is um, similar to the reasons you know that they're interested. They're shiny, they're different. Um, they're exploratory animals. They'll have a go at lots of things. So they end up in the gut for the same reason. I think the reason that the the presenting signs, I think we are seeing more and more birds that have um, some degree of gastrointestinal stasis. So they may present to us as as birds that are not doing well. You know, your typical, lots of us avian veterinarians talk about the sick bird look. Uh, But these birds will have a sick bird look, but have evidence of uh, gastrointestinal stasis, so they may not be passing nearly as many stools. Your average um, uh, parrot probably passes between 18 and 24 stools during, you know, their waking hours each day. Um, reproductive birds slow that up because they spend time in the nest. But if a Bird not nesting has fewer and fewer stools, and the owners notice it. That alerts us to something slowing that gastrointestinal tract up. And the other end of the digestive system also gives us clues because if the digestive system is dammed effectively by having some partial or complete obstruction, often the crop will fill up because it's not emptying into that obstructed gastrointestinal tract, that's probably the most obvious external clinical sign. So um, those sort of digestive system-focused presenting signs are the ones that often tip us off to investigate further, Brendan. And
1: how acute or chronic
0: would this be? They really vary. So we definitely have um, cockatiels who... um, We'll end up with beesaws. Uh, they'll have a go at there, and you, we've. All, I think we've have had a discussion about yes. uh, happy huts and environmental enrichment with those. I think we've um, settled that lawsuit. So um, I'm happy to stick my neck out and say that um, don't use nylon fiber toys with your birds because. They'll the cockatiels will eat them. A lot of keats are the same. They love to just preen them, absorb little bits of them, and they'll end up with a small bezoar in their crop or proventriculus. and And initially, they'll just have some, you know, gastrointestinal upsets. It'll be a chronic thing as the the knot uh, collects more and more fibres and gets bigger and bigger. The signs get worse and worse, and it might take six months from the first, uh, you know, something's not right till. Um, it reaches a fulminant absolute obstructive uh, stage. But then there are other ones where birds ingest, you know, a plastic piece of a toy or um, something indigestible and it gets uh, into the uh, um, proventriculus or even the intestine and causes an, an acute obstruction there. So time frame really varies depending on the case. Which
1: makes it a little bit tricky. And episode 118 was <laughs> the one that we covered that, month. You, you The title was... I'm onto it. Bezo what was the title of that
0: one, or, um, or Bezo what? You are demonstrating the wonderful nature of the search engine associated with our podcast, podcast. Oh, vetgurus.com. It's fantastic. Just
1: click in whatever you want and you'll find some amazing stuff there. Yeah, so it's a place to go. Now, you mentioned about changes coming out the back end of the bird. So, what what's the typical signs you see with the changes with the, the faecal output? Is it is it more sloppy drop-ins? Is it bound up? Is it... Is it Bloody drop into all of the above. Is there any particular type of um, production or non-production there that might um, Alert. set an alarm yeah, bell? Yeah, yes, yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. And you, you, with your option D, all of the above. It, it's definitely possible that anything could be associated with some of these partial or complete obstructions, but typically we see scant stools, so the sort of dropping that um, has uh, extra fluid. Um, and has a really skinny, often black fecal component um, set into a really moist um, and overly fluid urate component. Um, So the urates, the white part is often pretty like standard. Um, The urine and urates are refluxed into the terminal colon to have more fluid absorbed. So where these birds don't, you know, where they have um, altered function and the colon's not working well, that urine will remain. And then the, you know, often a bit of blood, shed cells some bacteria um, will still help to form stools, but they're scant because little food residue is getting past, little or no, past the blockage. Um, It tends to be dark and skinny and uh, um, stuck in the middle of the wet stuff.
1: So, how uncomfortable do you think these birds are? Do we see signs, clinical signs, and that's why maybe why the client brings them in of, of a sort of a pain response? Do we see the hunched-up bird look sort of with these ones or
0: not? I, I think the, it's an interesting question because I definitely see um, – with other sorts of uh, celomic pain, particularly reproductive pain, um, we would recognize a classic altered body position with these birds where um, their tail is swung forward to loosen the abdominal muscles, to swing the pelvis forward and loosen the abdominal muscles to relieve pressure intra-abdominally. That's a classic um, bent um, tail um, look that um, many of the birds who have reproductive problems have but when we're talking about gastrointestinal pain um, that's a less that uh, altered body position um, what's there's a technical word for that or, or, uh, or th- I'll think of it in a minute. or Orthop. no Um Keep going. Yeah, I'll come to you. <laughs> um, but that, that altered body position is not a classic uh, feature of gastrointestinal pain. I think the the anatomy that traps the gut between air sacs means that even if they loosen the abdominal muscles, they don't relieve a lot of that pain. Um, so the birds generally are, they generally exhibit that classic sick bird, low energy, fluffed up feathers, sit in the corner. Um, they, The body position doesn't often give you a clear clue as to which organ system is involved. And then you've got to do your classic Physical exam. Have a listen to the airways. Um, see uh, whether the birds are making different noises when they breathe, and it's the respiratory tract that's the problem. The history will give you clues about reproductive tract. But um,
1: so they're a bit of a challenge by the sound of it. These are these birds that may may be chronic or acute, and they're presented because my birds. NQR, as they say in the states, not quite right, as they put on the history there, or um, or as I'd put on LBS. Mark looks bloody sick. Um, is what I'd put it down. So, what's our workup for them? How do we start differentiating and, and trying to tie down the fact that this does have a GI obstruction?
0: Well, I think radiographs are your friend in this and these series of cases. I find um, that I get so much useful information from an initial survey radiograph, um, and you, they, you know, they don't blow up with gas like uh, maybe a dog with an obstruction do. Their metabolism is pretty fast and uh, the bacteria that live in their gut don't necessarily produce the same amount of gas. But you will see some gas in the uh, small intestine. But I find subsequent radiographs using contrast medium in the gut um, and it's relatively easy to instil some barium into the crop um, that even when there's almost complete obstruction and very little gastrointestinal contraction, the contrast medium, though it may be slow, will move through the gut and just highlights those um, structures, sometimes beautifully with, you know, a classic uh, negative contrast um, image of the specific foreign body.
1: And are there any sort of pointers on on other sort of diagnostics? Like I presume most of these you'd be doing general bloods on them as well. Are there any specific factors or biochem values that would would? Set off a bit of an alarm bell that perhaps
0: this is an obstructive case. No, no, we, as you are completely correct in that, we would regularly be uh, drawing some blood and having a look at it. There's not a universal, um, uh, absolute pattern, except for probably two things which would, you know, not switch me over from maybe to absolutely positive, but, um, a lot of these birds have a very low relative blood glucose so most birds would you know they're not in the the um sort of four to seven range that most mammals would spend most of their time. Most birds will get up to 19, 20 millimoles per litre in the SI units. Um, uh, so, that if they are down at that low end of the range, that sort of makes us worry they're not absorbing things as much as they could. And then generally, there's a an inflammatory white cell reaction, non-specific uh, inflammatory white cell reaction, not of the order of magnitude that we see with, you know, the the 60 to 80,000s with aspergillosis or chlamydiosis or mycobacteriosis, but certainly getting up towards the 35 to 40,000 cells per microliter. Yes.
1: So assume you've taken that radiograph and it comes up with a classic
0: suspect intestinal obstruction. What's your step from there, mate? Well, after I've stopped crying, um, I am um, because the reason I cry is because a lot of these end up being um, surgical procedures that we, you know, that we're pleased that we've got a diagnosis, but the clients are not going to go ahead with a surgical procedure. Um, there are some once we've identified the foreign body, and particularly those are the ones that are maybe in the crop or possibly even the proventriculus, depending on the species, where we might use endoscopy to try and access that area and, and grab onto the item and get it out. Um, but the Probably a significant portion of them, particularly in the proventriculus, the location I most commonly see them, um, they're going to be surgical cases um, that involve uh, a period of preparation with fluids and, uh, um, and analgesia. Followed by um, the surgical procedure to get in, and uh, and the proventriculus is one of those organs um, that uh, that you know struggles to heal, and and not uh, uncommonly, even with excellent surgical technique, wounds will dehisce. Um, so it's always a surgery that um, that uh, I approach with some well excitement in that we're going to solve the problem, but trepidation in that there are risks associated with it.
1: The animal will die, yes. <laughs> So you've jumped ahead of, you've answered my next question, and that was how many of these would respond to medical therapy, Mark? And can you remember of any, any actual ones where you thought there's no way it would respond to medical treatment, and it did? And what is the medical treatment, assuming that, um, let's just say, the owner does not want to take it to surgery, what other choice do you have?
0: Well, those ones I make a little bit of a, um, a subjective call about, you know, there are going to be some birds who are sick and we've identified a foreign body that's very, very large and they're not going to pass it. Um, and so I would, I would be more vigorous in my encouragement for, um, for clients to make a decision either to surgicalise the bird or to not go ahead at all to consider humane yes. euthanasia. Um, and that's not, as we talk about so often, I don't think, um, you know, that saves the bird considerable suffering um, and it's not a wrong call in my opinion. Um, I think there are a small number of cases where we've had, um, you know, foreign bodies that are in the intestine um, that look um, surprisingly not very big, uh, but there's, um, you know, there's no contrast medium getting past them. Um, and we have used uh, analgesia and um, prokinetics and um, and uh, um, protective, you know, supportive antibiotic therapy, fluid therapy, um, and given the birds a few days. And a couple of those birds have uh, passed surprisingly um, objects that I didn't think they were going to.
1: So surgery, Mark. The sur- Let's talk about the, it. The surgery is
0: exciting. It's definitely exciting. Um and um and the I suppose the key thing about it is I wouldn't call it um it's not uh all surgery in birds is is, you know, is uh Relatively small, um, and so you—that's probably the first thing that you feel a little bit cramped. Um, and in particular, in this surgery, you've got to go in through the uh, the left sulamic wall. You have to cut through a couple of ribs, and then you're into the um, the air sac right over the the um, the uh, proventriculus. You've got—it's almost like a little bit of a. A, a, you know, tunnel in and you can't use your um, your uh, um, retractors, your lone star retractors because, you you know, you've cut the ribs and you really can't pull back against the remaining ribs. So some, uh, some illumination on your forehead I find really useful in these surgeries. So you can shine that light straight into the little divot you've cut into the side of the bird. Then the standard sorts of things, you use stay sutures to raise the Proventriculus up to your uh, body wall incision, fix it in place, make sure that it doesn't um, sink back down into the body. One of the real risks of this surgery is air sac and salomic contamination with proventricular contents. And so, um, and it's often difficult to, you know, because of the obstruction, you can't. Starve them for a day and make sure the guts empty. The stuff that's in there is going to be there, um, and so you have to pack that area off well and really work hard to make sure there's no contamination. That's one of the factors in my experience where things go pear-shaped is where there's significant contamination in in that um, uh, uh, thoracic air sac called uh, the the caudal thoracic air sac. Um, so open up, find uh, and. It is. That's that. We've had a couple of ducks where we've done this exact uh, surgery, gone in, um, and the, the contents of the uh, the the proventriculus is you know just what you'd expect—a milky soup of green—and and and, um, and you often struggle to um, see the foreign body easily, and it's often a little bit of a a fishing game to get into the position where you can locate it and. Uh, grasp it and get it out. Um, so not panicking, taking your time, um, using suction to remove the the uh, uh, contents of the proventricular so you can visualize things more, packing it off. Then usually with birds, we're not in a situation when we get the thing out and we're happy we've got a wonderful surg- wonderful clean surgical site. Um, I just am routinely using single interrupted sutures to close the pro-ventricular. So I don't have enough space to do the classic uh, inverting, cushel, cush, what is it, Cushing, Connell Cushing uh, type yes. sutures. So single interrupted, just using a, a syringe to ensure that uh, fill the, the proventriculus with a little bit of fluid and make sure that I've got a good seal. Um, there isn't usually any um, mesentery to place over that Um, that organ um, and you usually have to uh, make sure you've got a good seal so you don't have that contamination um, and then close the abdominal wall and skin in routine fashion. Get in
1: there, remove it, get out. Now, what's your post-op plan, Mark? Any any, um, long antibiosis regardless or not? Um, What's your pain relief? How long for?
0: And What do you look for as far as things going right or wrong? Well, because of the risk of contamination, we are—you know—you know—I like to think of myself as a powerful advocate for the appropriate use of antibiotics, responsible use. Uh, But this is, I think, is a responsible use uh, to give these birds antibiotic coverage for a few days after surgery. I generally, if it's good, clean surgery, then it's just uh, five days. um, And we are looking for signs. Because the contamination goes into the air sac, we're looking for respiratory signs probably more than people would initially think. So um, we're paying particular attention, auscultating those birds on a regular basis after the procedure. Pain relief, obviously, with all our birds, we love to make sure they're feeling as normal as possible, particularly after a laparotomy. And so, um, routine butorphanol for a couple of days. We don't see a significant problem with those opioid analgesics and uh, gastrointestinal motility in these birds. Once we've removed the foreign body, that seems to settle down. Um, And we tend to um, start them on highly digestible food um, relatively quickly after we've um, finished the surgery, maybe um, that afternoon or certainly by the next morning we're um, inviting the bird to eat. And if they're not, um, then generally we're starting to assist feed them to make sure that... uh, There's movement, blood flow, and normal activity at the incision.
1: Yes. Now, finally, Mark, I want you to tell me about some of the...
0: Sometimes sometimes the the bits... in your...
1: (laughs) (laughs) your... No, this is is an easy question. Tell me about some of the fun or interesting things you have managed to retrieve from the inside
0: of a bird. (laughs) Um, I could do a... uh, um, a presentation on on the x-rays and the bits we've pulled out that's an idea
1: that would be good but no tell me a couple of them in fact if you have a picture of them we'll, we'll post one of them for the title picture of this this podcast as well so by the end of
0: it it's varied is it um, so are you, not, seeing, I was, I are was, you seeing was I was I was very um, obliquely making reference to um, a colleague of ours who does. Oh, yes. presentation um, but the, the the my shortfall in that comparison is that um, reptiles um, which uh, will have a go often at anything and so make an excellent, um, comical presentation about the things that they swallow, um, it's less so with the birds. They're a little bit more predictable. So we've talked about the bezaurs, the fibre balls. We, we definitely see with the foraging um, uh, poultry, they have a, an attraction to hardware, much like many of the farm animals. They'll pick up bits of wire or nails or screws and um, staples, those sorts of things, and uh, ingest them. The strange things lying around, you could almost predict the sorts of things, and when it comes to parrots, um, it's you know they'll break off a piece of an acrylic toy that's not been designed well, or um, they'll uh, they, they most of the organic things, the branches and uh, um, the toys that are made from um, uh, uh, organic materials, they tend to be not nearly as problematic as the as the synthetic ones. We've had you know, the latches, the stainless steel latches that are used to tie, you know, to screw something to the side of the cage. The cockatoos in particular are famous for trying to figure out how those things work. And once they do, they think it's fair game to swallow them. So we have had a couple of earrings. That's one of the reasons people shouldn't allow birds to sit on their shoulders (laughs) and particularly if they have expensive earrings. So
1: final question, how do you diplomatically explain to the client once you've extracted that product that they said they didn't have it all in the cage
0: (laughs) (laughs) it is very difficult sometimes when and there's a whole slew of veterinary situations where the clients absolutely swear there's no way that the puppy could have had access to rat poison, or um, that the cat would possibly have uh, ingested that string foreign body anywhere. Um, and birds are no different to any other veterinary um, veterinary patient. Um, there are circumstances where they deceive their owners um, and gain access to things of which their owners. Are completely unaware um, and uh, and we as sensitive, empathetic veterinarians understand that uh, very sneaky nature of the pets to get things past their owners.
1: Yes, it's a bit of an art, isn't it, um, g- going over that um, that um, discussion, let's call it, with the client, isn't it, Mark? And then um, extracting their money <laughs> for the pro- in the process. So I think with that, Mark, we'll... Um, we'll leave it but um, fascinating discussion and yes you need to send me a pic and we will place that on the website um, of one of these radiographs or, or items that have been extracted from an obstruction from the GI tract of a bird and with that we'll talk to you all next week